Well, good morning. It's been uh, four weeks since uh, I've seen you all uh, face to face when we've all been able to be in the same room together. And even though we've been um, interrupted, uh, we are continuing uh, to work our way uh, through the book of Philippians together. Now, that's not only uh, because we are stubborn. Uh, when your pastors uh, first became aware that we were going to have to make some alternative arrangements, uh, we sat down and we talked, and we knew we wanted to address the current situation, uh, but at the same time, we didn't think that it would be wise to preach a COVID-19 sermon series. Uh, for one, we don't even know how long uh, this is going to continue to last. Uh, but the more we talked, we just realized that Paul's letter to the Philippians is actually very fitting, uh, very well-suited uh, to the times. If you remember, Paul is writing here to a discouraged and worried congregation. And so he writes to comfort and encourage them, and he does that uh, with the gospel. That is, he, he comforts them with all that God has done for them in Jesus and all that he is continuing to do for them uh, in Jesus. And so as we come to a text that might strike you as a little heavy-handed uh, when you first hear it, I want you to keep that in mind, that Paul and through him the Holy Spirit uh, is writing uh, words of comfort here. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to Philippians uh, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses uh, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear, that by your spirit we would be changed by the word of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a big difference between a job and a vocation. In a job, you... Uh, put in your time and get compensated so that you can get back to doing uh, the things that you want to do. Uh, in a vocation, though, uh, the work itself is actually the goal because, because it's what you were made to do and, and because the work is part of uh, who you are. And so my question for you this morning is, which do you think describes your work as a Christian. I'm not talking about uh, your employment, but how do you think 
about God's expectations for you, about your walking in obedience, about your holiness, about your growth in grace? Is it something that you just have to do so that you can then move on and and get back to doing what you want to do? Or is is it the thing itself? Our passage begins with the word, uh, therefore. It's an obvious uh, link uh, to what has come before, and it actually is the concluding uh, paragraph to a longer section uh, that began several weeks ago for us in chapter 1, uh, verse 27. If you remember there, Paul tells the Philippians that they are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, and he really stresses the importance of both striving and unity and how those two things depend on each other. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, in the first four verses, he talks about the humility that is required uh, for unity. You can't really be one with people if if you think you're better uh, than they are. And then in the next section, in verses 5 through 11, that's what we looked at together uh, last week, uh, we see that Jesus himself is the supreme example of humility. And in particular, it's that last section that 12 through 18 are really building off of here. It's there that we see obedience first mentioned in verse 8. It's Christ's obedience to his Father that's in view. And here, the matter is picked up again as something for the Philippians to consider. You see, Paul, Paul wants to talk about their lives He wants to talk about our uh, lives. And so the simple formula here is that Jesus, the one before whom every knee will bow, this Jesus, he obeyed. And so if you are united to him, then of course you too must walk in obedience. Paul calls this, working out your own salvation. And that's what I want to talk about in the few minutes uh, that we have left. What is our work as Christians? How are we to think about the work that we do have to do? And so we'll look at just two aspects of our work, uh, two features of our obedience as Christians. First, we'll look at the nature of that work, and then we'll look at the ground of that work. Now, first, uh, the nature of our work, Paul begins here with an important uh, qualifier. Before he ever gets to any kind of exhortation, he reminds the Philippians who they are, and he addresses them, you see there in verse 12, as my beloved. He commends, actually, all their obedience up until this point. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that they have been partners with him in the gospel ever since he first met them and up until now. And so we have to understand, uh, in order to make any sense out of this passage, we need to see that Paul is speaking to Christians. He's talking to believers here. The call to work out your own salvation is addressed to those who already belong to God by faith. They already have the salvation that they're called to work out. And so the question is, well, if we already have it, then what is it? What does it mean to work it out? Well, Paul 
wants us to know that there really is work to do for Christians. You see, there is this not yet side to our salvation. Uh, Though you are united to Jesus, you're not yet like him. And though you're free from both the guilt and the power of sin, you're not yet free uh, from its presence. And so there really is still work to do. And what Paul says here uh, in very plain language is that we have to do the work. Now, in just a minute, I'll, I'll talk about God's work in us, but that does not take away from the fact that effort is all over the New Testament. So Paul can say in an earlier letter to the Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And another apostle, Peter, says in 2 Peter 1, writing to Christians, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Not not diligent to get your calling or to get your election, but to confirm it. Uh, D.A. Carson says it a little more quippy. He says, people don't drift into holiness. We're to make every effort to live like this gospel is really true. To live like Jesus really is our king and we really do belong to his family by adoption and union with him. Now, I know that some of you will be a little nervous when you think we're beginning to talk about keeping rules. Some of you will be nervous that somehow maybe you're not really doing enough in order for God to love you. Some of you will be nervous that someone else might think he is doing enough in order to get God to love him. But that's, that's really not what Paul is talking about here at all. He's not talking about keeping a list of rules. What Paul has in view is taking every breath for Jesus and independence on Jesus. To work out your salvation means that we are to live into it, to really believe what God says about us in Jesus and to live like it's true. And so that's, that's the nature of our work here. It is for Christians. It is our work. There, there really is work to do. And, and lastly, this work is done before God. Uh, my two-year-old, Catherine, uh, just a few weeks ago, she was in her room and her crib is, is just close enough where if she reaches, she can get a hold of the light switch. And she was flipping it uh, up and down. She was having a good time. I think she thought she was getting away with something. My wife uh, was watching her from the door. And as she walked in, Catherine jumped up and sort of had a guilty look on her face. And she said, no, 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 no. The point is, her behavior completely changed when she realized that she was being watched. Paul says that our working out of our salvation is to be done in fear and trembling because all of our work is done before God. When he uses this phrase in other places, he always means our disposition or our attitude in God's presence. And so this is not 
uh, the fear of loss or the fear of some kind of backlash from an angry uh, superior. It is simply the recognition of the honor that is owed uh, to our Creator and to our Father and what, what is proper uh, to the one who has been exalted as King of the earth. And so our obedience, our, our working out our salvation, though it is not a slavish obedience, it's no light matter. It's not something that can just be picked up and, and put down at our pleasure. And it's not something that we can just get to later. And you might think, well, why are we even talking about this? Um, in these times of uncertainty, while I'm sitting at home on my couch having to watch church on TV, we can't even gather together. Why are we getting a theological discourse on the nature of our obedience? Well, I know that some of you, um, perhaps many of you, are afraid right now, afraid of uh, the virus or perhaps um, some of the economic trends that we're seeing, maybe both. I certainly don't know what's going to happen. And uh, it is scary. We've all been shocked back into the reality uh, that we are not in control. And so what I want you to know this morning is that even though it seems like the world has stopped, our lives before God are not on hold. Now, we live before the God who really is in control. And that means you can trust him every day with everything. You can know that when you fear him, you don't have to fear anything else. And so that's the nature of this work. But there's more here. And this is the really uh, good news that we need to see here. I want us to look at the ground of our work. After Paul says, work out your salvation, the very next verse, verse 13, begins with four. In other words, uh, he's going to give us the reason that we're to work out our salvation. And this is one of the most encouraging things he has to say in the whole letter. He says, for it is God who works in you. I hope you hear that. Uh, if you are united to Christ by faith. If your hope is in his death and in his resurrection, then God himself is at work in you. Growth in grace takes effort, but God is the ground of all our effort. If you remember back in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, it's God who begins the work in you, and it's God who will bring it uh, to completion. This is the same idea that Jesus has in view in John's gospel, in chapter 15, when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. No good works are done without Jesus being at work 
in you. And so all of our striving and working at our salvation is because God is at work in us. Uh, the rest of the verse might seem a little confusing at first, but uh, grammatically here, uh, to will and to work actually still refer uh, to our will and to our work. Uh, but what Paul is saying is that it's God who gives you the will, that is, the desire to obey. And but because desire is not enough, he gives you the work too. The obedience itself is from God. Uh, it's been a long time uh, since I've had to work on a group project, but my memory is that no one likes group projects. Uh, they make things uh, more cumbersome, and a lot of times somebody ends up feeling like they're getting taken advantage of. But what Paul has in mind here is, is not a 50-50 split where God, he does his part, and then, and then you do yours. And, and it's not even a 95-5 split. Uh, one theologian calls this uh, gospel math. Uh, but as you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, it's all you and it's all God. It's all my effort with all of God's energy. I work because he is at work. And so there's this tendency to sort of prefer one side of the equation uh, over the other. But Paul just takes both sides here and all their force and says we have to work because God is at work. And so here's the encouragement. God, who made the whole world, God who sent his son and raised him from the dead and crowned him as king over all things, he is your father and he is pleased to be at work in you. I just Recently, my older two boys, uh, they're uh, nine and 10 years old, have started to want to mow the lawn. I think part of it is because they want to save up for an Xbox, and part of it is because I bought a self-propelled lawnmower. But when they were younger, maybe they were three or four, uh, they would also uh, want to help. And so they would stand between me and the lawnmower and, and sort of reach up and hold on to the, the crossbar of the handle and they would they would push while I walked around and I cut the grass. Well, some of you some of you have been Christians for a long time and I know that there are sins and sin patterns that can and have left you feeling uh, defeated. And so what you need to hear is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just that you are forgiven, but that Jesus is presently still at work in you. And so your hope is in him and not in yourself. And that means that you actually can strive with all the confidence of my three-year-old pushing the lawnmower. You can know that you have not been left to your own strength. A theologian John Murray says, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be 
that all the energizing grace and power is of God. So how does this, how does this apply to us right now? Well, well, Paul actually ends this paragraph by talking about not grumbling. Um, he tells the Philippians, you know, how can you grumble against other Christians that Jesus um, has died for? And I actually uh, ends the section by talking about his own joy. He tells them that he is joyful, and even if he dies, he'll still be joyful. And so he wants them uh, to be joyful as well. So let me leave you with this final thought. Uh, the world, the world that we live in needs hope. I might sound like just religious speak to talk about living in a crooked and a twisted uh, generation, but we really do live in a world that has fallen. I imagine that's easier for you to believe now than it was a month ago. And that world is desperate for hope. Uh, but because God is at work in us, we can hold fast to the word of life. That is, we can keep a tight grip on the gospel because what saved us is what will keep us. And as we hope in him, as we rejoice in all that he has done for us and all that he's continuing to do for us, we can pray that God would make us like stars in the night sky, that we would be shining rays of hope in a dark world. Let's pray. God, we do pray that that might be true of us, that by your Holy Spirit's work in our lives, you would use us to commend Jesus Christ to a lost and hopeless world. We confess our own laziness, our own uh, lack of desire to, to live for you and to serve you, but we pray that you would be at work in us. God, we thank you and we praise you that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Jesus, dwells in us, lives in us, and his power, resurrection power, is at work in us. And God, I pray that you would cause us to be people who would learn to rejoice in all things. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And now here, uh, this benediction from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.